root budge, by the way. Budge, like budgeting. And so from the root budge, you get, so budge means to devote oneself, then bhakta means a devoted one. But, but it can also mean, if you know what a participle is, it's a verb acting as a noun. So therefore, bhakta can not only simply mean a devotee, but one who is devoted. One who is devoted. And when we go out to teach Krishna consciousness, what we find is that um, there are many people who have a soft spot in their heart for God. Or there are many people who, if we just tell them about Krishna, there is this infinitely beautiful person who, you know, world-class musician, and he spoke this book of wisdom, Bhagavad Gita. There are many people who, if we explain Krishna in a reasonable, appropriate way, find it interesting, find it attractive. And they all qualify in this verse. So Krishna says, one who will teach. He's talking about us. Abhidhasyati is the future tense of the verb. One who will teach. So Krishna's talking about us. One who will teach this to those who are receptive to the message. Literally having done the highest devotional service. It's a very literal translation. Having done the highest devotional service, uh, without doubt, asanshaya, that person will come to me alone. To me alone. And this is a typical way Krishna speaks. To me alone. In other words, there's no other possible outcome. There's no other possible outcome apart from spiritual perfection. Without doubt, Krishna says. And then he goes on to emphasize it further. So again, a strictly literal translation would be, apart from this person, no one else is most dear. I mean, literally, Krishna doesn't say no one is more dear. He says, no one but this person is most dear to me. <coughs> no one but this person is most dear to me. Or actually, Priyakritama, literally, no one but this person has pleased me the most. Let's get, I mean, I'm getting more literal. I'm kind of falling into uh, you know, familiar readings of it. Priyakrit. Priya, love or pleasure. Actually, Priya is related to our English word pleasure, Priya, pleasure. And crit means to make, or one who has made crit, we have in English, in words like create. You can see, I mean, Sanskrit's all over the place in English. So, in other words, no one, and tama means the most. No one but this person has literally made for me or created for me the most pleasure. No one has pleased me the most in normal English. No one has pleased me the most but this person. And in the future, no one will ever please me more than this person. No one, because Babita is the, well, if you're curious, the paraphrastic future tense of the verb. And so Babita means that no one in the future will ever. Please me more 
than this person. Now, if the goal of your life is to please Krishna, you should definitely sit up and take notice of this. So, if we want to practice bhakti yoga, what does bhakti yoga mean? What do the words mean? Yoga means a spiritual practice in this context. And bhakti means the spiritual practice of pleasing God, the spiritual practice of... It's interesting because if you look at the word vaj, let's just talk a little about the word vaj, and then I'll get into my climactic uh, chastisement of everyone. Just kidding. <laughs> the root vaj in Sanskrit can mean to share. In fact, that's one of the original meanings of it. To share or to accept. For example, consider that Krishna says in the Gita that he budges all of us. In the verse, Jejata Mam Prabhadyante, as all people approach me, the word we translate surrender, Prabhadyante, literally means to approach. Like Prabhupada said, if you approach the sun, you become fire. Pra in Sanskrit uh, is related to our, our English pro, like pro something, and it kind of means forth, positively, positively do something. And uh, pad means to go. That's why the word pada means foot, because the foot goes. So the verb pad means to go, and so pad means to go forth or to go towards. And so, in other words, to approach, to approach something, to go. And so when Krishna says, as people surrender to me, or as they, he literally says, as they approach me. Because at every moment, you are approaching God. And when you eat food, what do you think that food is? It's Krishna's energy. When you appreciate a good meal, you are actually admiring God. When you see a beautiful scene or a beautiful person, you are actually admiring God. So at every moment, we are seeing Krishna, we just don't know we're seeing him. Just like if an ant crawls on your arm, in one sense, the ant knows better than you do the terrain of your arm. The ant knows every freckle in here, and you don't. I mean, I actually never did a serious, systematic study of the freckles and hairs on my arms. You know, but the ant knows it. And yet, the ant has no idea it is an arm. And there's no idea it's, it's the arm of a human being, or, you know, the, the ant is clueless. So material science is something like that, in the sense that, um, you know, they know all this detailed information, but they're totally clueless about where they really are, namely on the body of God. So um, at every moment, we're actually seeing Krishna. We just don't know we're seeing Krishna. Just like the ant doesn't know it's actually experiencing your body at every moment. It has no idea it's doing that. But Krishna says, yad yad, whatever. Yad yad vibhuti matsatvam. Whatever existence, whatever existing thing is vibhuti uh, which is translated opulent. I'll show you what it means. I mean, you really get it like in my Bhagavad Gita, Infomercial. I always, I'm very scrupulous about this whenever uh, we're going to be giving, giving out my Bhagavad Gita. This is what I do, I actually explain all these things in the Gita, all what all these things mean. Bu is from the Sanskrit verb to be. In fact, that's where we get the be in the English word be. 
Sanskrit Bhavati. So Bhu means to be or to become, and V, if you know Italian, like, like in Italy, if they want to say like away, away, they say via, via. And so via, just like, for example, a via, like, like la via dolorosa, means like a way. So a via is a way or a way, and that's actually the Sanskrit V. That's where it comes from. So Sanskrit V means a way or a part. It's the opposite of sung, like sung means together and V means apart. So uh, you have like sung yoga, V yoga, the Bhagavad Gita. Now V can mean a part or a way also in the sense of distribution or categorization or expansion because something going away can indicate not simply separation, it may indicate expansion. And that's the sense that V is used in the word vibhuti. Bhuti is just a feminine noun from the verb to be. So it means like existence or being. In Sanskrit, you can make a feminine noun by adding T-I-T to verbal roots, such as shruti, smriti, bhakti. Those are all feminine nouns made by adding T. So in the word bhuti, it means existence or being from the verb bhu. Now, or becoming, and V means expansion. And so vibhuti means expansive existence. It's interesting, isn't it? And so, so Krishna in chapter 10 of the Gita is called the vibhuti yoga chapter because Krishna is talking about all the expansions of his, how his existence, how his being expands. <laughs> And mutt, of course, means one who possesses. It's the same as but, like Bhagavad or mutt. So, jad jad vi bhuti mutt sattvam. I, I mean, I can go on with the word sattvam too, but I'll, I'll kind of get going here. So, any existence, any existing thing which possesses vi bhuti, expansive existence, opulence. In other words, its beauty expands. As Krishna says, srima, it possesses sri. So, it has expansive beauty, expansive power expansive intelligence, any existing thing with expansive opulence. Jaja vibhuti matsatam srimat urjitam, any powerful thing, energetic thing, urjitam, evava, whatever it may be, tattareva, which literally in Sanskrit means in each and every case. Tattareva. Avagacha twang, you understand. Avagacha is interesting. Ava means down or into, and gacha means go. So, just as in English, you can go deeply into something. Just like we say, you know, go deeply into it. That's what avagacha means. Because ava means down, and in deeply into something. Like avatar, one who crosses down. So, avagacha twang, in each and every case, go deeply into it. And you will see it is mamate jangsa. It is an angsha, or is this translated like a spark of my splendor, my tejas. So that means that whatever we are seeing in this world that just strikes us or gets our attention, like, wow, he's really good looking, or she's beautiful, that's a beautiful scene there, or I really love this music. You're actually seeing God, you just don't know it. So, um, so if we really want to please Krishna, then we should try to understand seriously Bhagavad Gita. What Krishna is actually saying 
and then try to teach it to others, and then teach it to others. So in fact, it is our responsibility to teach the public that if you want to practice bhakti yoga, yes, chant Hare Krishna, offer your food to Krishna, read these books, and also teach others. I've been making this point very much. For example, if you join, let's say, an animal rights movement or a social justice movement, you understand this is an activist movement. If you join that club, you're, you know, they're going to expect you to help them to make the world a better place. Like on campus, some campus clubs are just, you know, for people's own amusement. And some campus clubs are activist clubs. You know, you're supposed to go out and help the world. Krishna consciousness is an activist club. I think people really need to understand that if you want to advance spiritually, it's not just about the chanting. I mean, it is about the chanting. It is the chanting and the prasadam and the books, but it's you need to help others if you want to advance in Krishna consciousness. I can prove that in Krishna's own words. I mean, it's all over the Gita, actually. For example, Krishna says, Samak Sarveshu Bhuteshu Mat Bhaktin Lavate Param. This is, I think, 1854. That you will achieve the highest bhakti when you are equal to all beings. Now, all beings includes you, right? That means you cannot be kinder to yourself than you are to others. <clears throat> you cannot be kinder to yourself than you are to others because you're not being equal there. When Krishna says all beings, that includes you. It includes me. So if I think I'm going to worry about my own advancement and not care about others, it's not possible. Because you can only, because you're not being equal, and therefore you're not paying attention to what Krishna is saying. So as much as you care about other people, that much you can really, at least, at least truthfully, care about yourself. As much as you see others as spirit soul, that much you can see yourself as spirit soul. You cannot be self-realized unless you see everyone else as a soul. There is no process by which I see myself as a soul, but I haven't got time for you. There is no such thing. Krishna says, sum up the same, equal. Samak sarveshu bhuteshu, to all of you beings. Krishna says, pandita samadarshana. The wise see everyone equally. That includes myself. So if I see myself as better than others, I don't get it. I'm not wise. If as a leader, you know, with this title or that position, if I think that I'm better than others, then I'm not wise. And a spiritual leader who's not wise is uh, not a great idea. Because I am wise if and only if I see everyone as ultimately equal. Yes, externally, you know, if someone's a guru, someone's a disciple, someone's a big leader, someone's just a you know head bottle washer, whatever it may be, but that's external. Someone is a guru, someone is a spiritual leader precisely because they are not fooled by the external hierarchy. They know that even though externally there is hierarchy and we need some hierarchy, 
You can't have chaos now, chaos and anarchy. But there's a higher truth behind that. And the higher truth is we're all equal. So to think that men are better than women is just means that someone is not wise. For example, it just means someone's not wise. They're in the bodily concept of life. So uh, we need to really understand this ourselves and communicate it powerfully and persuasively to others that the practice of bhakti yoga necessarily includes helping the world. Directly helping, not like, well, you know, if I water my lawn, then that's my, that's my Sankirtan. I mean, that's nice, but uh, we really need, Krishna says in the Gita, if we want to please Krishna the most, we have to teach. And everyone here should be a guru. Everyone here should be a guru. Prabhupada, you know, said that depending on your position, like he was, he was giving a, um, a lecture to a group of Indian, you know, Hindu businessmen in Nairobi, Kenya. These are businessmen. They told them, you all have to be gurus. Now, because you have families and businesses, maybe you won't be a shika, a diksha guru, because you're still engaged so much in the world in different ways. And obviously, when you're doing business, you can't treat everyone like a poor fallen soul. You have to treat them like a client or competitor or whatever. He said, but in your own way, you should be a guru. So it doesn't matter what your gender is. That's totally irrelevant. It doesn't matter, you know, whether you've been in the movement this long or that long. Everyone has to feel a personal responsibility to help others. Unless we feel that, you can't really help yourself very much. Because you have to see everyone equally. Because actually, we're all equal. We're all eternal souls. So if I don't want to help others, how much do I really want to help myself? Because I'm no different than they are. And just as Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, actually, he quoted that from the Old Testament, but it was a, it was a very good verse to quote. And as I've said, um, we have a verse like that in the Bhagavad Gita. Where Krishna says, as I explained before, that if you compare yourself to everyone else and you see that we're all equal, opamya means that you actually compare yourself, atma opamya, sarvatra, everywhere, with everyone, samang paschati georgina, and you see that we're all equal. So the more we care about others, the more we really care about ourselves, the more we help others, the more we're really helping ourselves. And um, somehow or other, we have to persuade people to help themselves by helping others and spread this movement for everyone's good. So any questions on these points? Yes. Sometimes you give so much to help others and you neglect <coughs> your own like physical health or stress level or whatever. Okay, that's a good point. Yeah, I mean everything has to be done 
an appropriate measure. And obviously your first, in a sense, your first duty is to keep yourself healthy and then help people appropriately in a way that doesn't damage yourself. It's just like we should not, I mean, it's balanced. It's just like we should not be so absorbed in ourselves that we neglect others. We can't be so absorbed in others that we neglect ourselves. Because a precondition for helping anyone is that we have to be healthy. That's a good point. So, anything else? Yes. Maharaj, why in Shastra they mentioned, uh, since you're mentioning that uh, you know, there's no difference between male and female, but in Shastra they mentioned like, Striya Vaisheshvara Shudra Shokhi So, why that discrimination Krishna is talking about? Krishna is actually rejecting the discrimination, not affirming it. What Krishna is doing in Bhagavad Gita is, is, is talking about certain demographics, certain members of society who in that culture of the time were not always respected and saying he's denying that they cannot achieve perfect. I mean, he's affirming that actually they also achieve the same perfection. We have to remember something. Uh, Krishna appeared 5,000 years ago <coughs> in India. And if you read Mahabharata, which gives a very, and also Bhagavatam, which gives a very elaborate description of the society at the time. We know a lot about the social structure, how people related to each other, you know, how they talked to each other, what was going on. We have these large wars. And so someone may mistakenly think, oh, that's Vedic culture. But actually, don't forget, it's about that sort of, you know, nice emblem of Vedic culture. Yes, the culture of Mahabharata. But don't forget that in Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says about that society, Yoganashta. They have lost the spiritual science. Krishna says, Yada yada hi dharmasya glanir bhavati bharata avyutanam adharmasya that I come when dharma has collapsed and adharma, injustice, is flourishing. And Krishna came. There he is, speaking this. That means the civilization we find in Mahabharata is a civilization which dharma has, has fallen and adharma has become prominent and the spiritual science has been lost. That's the civilization we're seeing. And therefore, Krishna, to affirm that women and Shudras and Vaishas are not, are not excluded from the highest spiritual perfection. That he affirms it. He affirms it not because he sees them as different, but because other people at the time were seeing it. So, and do you think it's an accident that Krishna designed his pastimes the way he did? Obviously, when Krishna comes to this world, considering that he's God and you know, very bright. <laughs> when Krishna comes to this world, he personally orchestrates. He, you know, he orchestrates, he designs. He, all his pastimes are very carefully crafted. So do you think it's an accident that Krishna manifested pastimes in which the greatest devotees in the universe are women? 
the gopi. In fact, Lord Brahma, the creator of the universe, says he wants to take birth as grass and Vrindavan so the gopis can walk over him. He can get the dust of their feet. Brahma said that. It's not an accident. It's not an accident that you have a pastime where Krishna's coward boyfriends are hungry, which shows that things haven't changed very much among the Vaishnavas. <laughs> I mean, judging from ourselves, our sort of default state is hungry. So, Krishna's coward boyfriends are hungry, and so Krishna tells them to go to these ritual Brahmins, these very high-class but ritualistic Brahmins who are performing a sacrifice, and part of the sacrifice is to you know, have a lot of food that's being offered. So they go there and beg for food. The Brahmins just kind of say, get out of here, you little brats. And so they, they send them away. And the coward boys are really disappointed because they're really hungry. And then Krishna says, okay, go back and ask their wives for the food. So they go back, and the Brahmins' wives immediately are in ecstasy. Krishna want something from us. They ran all around their houses, got every morsel of food they could find, and, and rushed to bring it to Krishna. Now, what's interesting here is that every imaginable male authority figure forbids them. You go right down the list. Their fathers, their elder brothers, their grown sons, their husbands, just check them off one by one. All the male authority figures tell them don't do it, and they basically tell these men, eat prasadam. So, you know, they, they refuse this and they go anyway. Why did Krishna place this in his pastimes? I mean, it would be, I think, a little naive to think he's not trying to tell us something. Not only that, Krishna lived approximately 125 years in this world. And uh, that's approximately 365 days a year. You know, add a little bit for leap years. And, I mean, I think it's obvious that Krishna performed lots of really interesting things every day. So that would be 125 times 365 times lots. And you know, that's going to be a very big number. We're talking about tens of thousands. And yet in the Bhagavatam, we only have about 100 pastimes. Some chapters have two pastimes. There's 90 chapters in the 10th canto. So then we have 100, 110 pastimes out of... So really, what that means is we have less than 1% of Krishna Leela in the 10th canto. That means that the pastimes we do have the ones that the great Shuka chose to narrate, they are highly selective. Out of thousands and tens of thousands of interesting things Krishna did, Shuka, inspired by Krishna himself, decided that these are the pastimes that people really need to hear. And among those are the pastimes where the greatest devotees in the universe are women, and where Krishna conscious women ignore what every male authority figure says and go to Krishna anyway. You know, 
If someone doesn't get this, they're really not paying attention. And in Bhagavad Gita, I, I'm not saying wives, ignore your husbands. You know, it's it's not a general call for you know marital disharmony. That's not the point, because of course, you know, there are many, many men who are excellent Vaishnavas and so on. I'm simply saying though that if you look at the role of women, if you look at first, I'll give you an example from Mahabharata. There's a conversation between Kunti and Pandu, where uh, Kunti has called three demigods, uh, Dharma, Vayu, and Indra, and uh, through them she begot, of course, uh, Yudhisthira, Bhima, and Arjuna. And then Madri said, hey, could you call a demigod for me? Or could you give me this power because she was really having to press that I don't have any children to give my husband. And so Kunti said, all right. So then she, she double-dipped. You know, she called the... <laughs> she called the twins, the two Ashwins, and got, you know, two, two sons, uh, Nakula and Sahadev. And Kunti was kind of like, hey, you know, you double-dipped. Anyway... So at that point, at that point, Pandu, he was like, oh my God, let's just keep going here, sons. Because for kings, you know, they love to have sons. For one thing, because the life expectancy of kings and princes is not often very long. And so really maintaining the dynasty, you need lots of male heirs you can fight. So, so Pandu is, 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 is telling Kunti, call some more demigods. And she's saying, no. She says, you know, what are people going to think about me? I've already had sons with three demigods. You know, that's it. Game over. And so, now, here comes a really interesting part. Pandu says to Kunti that a wife must obey her husband, whether he's right or wrong. And we know what kind of people are going to pull those quotes out and brandish them. <laughs> However, if you read down a few lines, what you find is that Kunti actually rejects what he says, refutes his arguments, gives better arguments, and he says, basically, yes, dear. <laughs> so, so the point here, you can pull a quote out like this, but when you look at these histories more closely, what you find is these are real people. These are real people. They love each other, they care about each other, they, they listen to each other. It's not just this kind of ugly, chauvinist society. These are real people that really love each other and care about each other. And when you love someone, you don't just bully them because you know you'll lose their love. So, um, yeah, that's what we find. We find real people. I mean, look at the relationship between Nand and Jashoda. Was she just kind of like running around the house and her, her husband was saying, do this, do that. Yes, my lord. Yes, my lord. I mean, is that the picture you get from Krishna Leela of Yashoda Nanda? No. The picture I get, they're just real people. They're a happy couple. They love each other. And they just, they're like partners in raising Krishna. So, there you have it. 
So that verse in Bhagavad you get the point. So, so, so in Bhagavad Gita, in Bhagavad Gita, Krishna is rejecting male chauvinism. He's rejecting it. And saying women get exactly the same perfection. And in his pastimes, he shows that the greatest devotees can be women. I find one of the most poignant, moving scenes in the 10th canto of the Bhagavatam is when all Krishna's devotees, the Yadu dynasty and the, uh, the residents of Vrindavan, all come to Guru Chaitra for the solar eclipse. It's a very moving scene if you really pay attention because, first of all, these people are devotees. I mean, they seem like maybe to us like somewhat mythic figures and we read the 10th canto. These are real people. They've heard of each other. It's just like, let's say, in Iskop. You know, we've heard of some famous devotees or advanced devotees or great acharyas. So, obviously, the residents of Vrindavan had heard about the other dynasty because they were pure devotees of Krishna and they knew there is this very special dynasty that is completely devoted to Krishna. And Krishna lives among them. They see him every day. And then not speak of the Pandavas. So they all came together. Now the Yadus, the Yadus were the last word in aristocracy. They were these big, powerful kshatriyas and beautiful royal women. You know, the men were strong. The women were strong. I mean, Subhadra, who's a Yadavi princess, was expert in driving a war chariot. You know, so much for, you know, some people's concepts of the role of women. Subhadra, when, when you know, it's called Subhadra uh, Praharana, when Arjun took away Subhadra, I mean, it's not that he just, like, kidnapped her. They actually eloped together. They made a plan together and they eloped. It was really an elopement, not a kidnapping. And Subhadra drove the chariot. Another thing about, you know, you know, if you have some stereotypes about women in Vedic culture, it's mentioned in the Mahabharata that uh, when the Pandavas and Krishna went down to this resort area along the Jamuna River in the summer, by the way, they, they had vacation areas. Like, for example, in Dwarka, the resort area was Rivataka Mountain. So when they wanted to go on vacation, you know, have festivals, they went, that was the resort area, the vacation area. And for Hastinapur, the resort area was on, they had these like summer vacation spots on the Jamuna River. So it's in the uh, Mahabharata at one time in the summer. Actually, actually, it's in the, it's also described in the, the 10th canto of the Bhagavatam. That one time when Krishna was visiting the Pandavas Nindraprastha, they, you know, summer was really hot. They went down to the river for vacation, spend, you know, spend some time down at the river. And among the other activities, there were wrestling tournaments, <laughs> like, you know, wrestling tournaments among the women. The women had wrestling tournaments. Now, this may not fit with some people's notion of the role of women. I mean, they weren't wrestling with the men. They weren't like, you know, beating the men up or anything, but they were, you know, these were Kshatriya women. You have Subhadra driving a war chariot. You have the women having wrestling tournaments. You have Draupadi, you know, whipping Jayadratha in the face when he, when he kidnaps her. These are very strong, powerful women. She doesn't just like say, oh my God, I'm helpless. She whips him in the face. 
don't try this at home. <laughs> and I'll oh, just give one more example though. Another example of, uh, that these were real people. It wasn't just some kind of, you know, thing where the women just shut up and do what they're told and say, yes, my Lord. And then, for example, the case of Sudama Brahmana, the famous Brahmin friend of Krishna. They, I mean, he and his wife were so poor, I mean, their bones were sticking out. Their ribs were sticking out. And so his wife said, go talk to your friend Krishna. He's in Dwarka now. He's not far away. Everybody knows he's like the richest person in the world. Go talk to your friend. He loves you. And Sudama didn't want to go. But he did go. Why? Because his wife told him to go. Every husband knows what this is about. <laughs> in other words, Sudama loved his wife. He loved his wife. He cared about his wife. And when he saw that this was really important to her, he put aside his own feelings and he did what she asked. They were real people. They had real relationships. And what we find in history is that when you try to ideologically control human relationships and subordinate nature to ideology, you just create atrocity. That's what Nazism was about. Where you would put aside nature and just try to impose ideology. That's what communism was about. That's what Mao Zedong was about. That's what Stalin was about. Where you forget nature, forget the real world, forget real people, forget the feelings of real people, and just uh, you know shove ideology down everyone's throat, and just try to bully people and push them around with ideology. So the point is, if you look at Shastra, if you look at marriages, if you look at relationships, what you find is these are real people. These are real people. They love each other. And when real husbands and real wives love each other, there's mutual respect and they just cooperate together like a team. That's what real people do in a good marriage. So that's the role of women. Or, for example, take the case of, again, from the Mahabharata. Not only were the women not treated as inferior, they were treated as superior. I'll give you an example of this. It was a chivalrous society. So I'll give you an example of Vedic chivalry. Uh, if you look at the story of the Pandavas, from the moment the Pandavas came down from the mountains, from a place called Shatasringa, which means 100 peaks, they were way up in the mountains with their father Pandu. They grew up as yogis, not as kshatriyas. That's why when the, when, the, when the Pandavas had to go in disguise, they disguised themselves as Brahmins. Why? Because they grew up as Brahmins. That was actually their native cultural language. That was their first cultural language. They could dress and walk and talk the part perfectly. So they come down when Pandu died and Mandri died, they came down from these mountains in a funeral procession they came into the city of Hastinapur, and for the first time in their lives, they saw a city. I mean, they're already traumatized by the death of two parents. They come down to Hastinapur, and for the first time in their lives, they see horses. They've never seen horses. They've never seen elephants, soldiers, a city, 
buildings? Because you don't have those up where they were. Horses don't go, elephants don't go way up in the mountains like that. So imagine, and when they came down, they're wearing deer skin at matted locks, they were yogis. And they, you know, imagine the culture shock. And they're already traumatized by the loss of their parents. So you can just see their state of mind. And then when they get down there, one of the first things they're told, their uncle Vidura calls them aside and says, by the way, uh, there are people in the palace who will try to kill you. So that's their reception. That's their welcome home. And then from there, it's a very powerful story if you really get into it. And so from there, um, there's so many things that happen. They're persecuted in different ways. And yet despite all these persecutions, the assassination plots in the first year or two they're there, conducted by Duryodhana, when that fails, they realize they you know, then, then they send them off to Varnavata, and Duryodhana builds the house of lack, this fire trap, to burn them up alive with their mother, you know, kind of a nice nephew for Kunti. You know, one wants to burn them all alive in this house. They escape that. They go to Varnavata, they then go to Eka Chakra, and they live in disguise, and then they, they go and they win Draupadi. And then when they win Draupadi, then they actually come out of hiding. Why? They now have an army on their side. They're not just five young men with their own weapons against thousands and thousands of enemies. Now they have an army, the powerful Panchala kingdom. So they come out of hiding. And then when they come out of hiding, the Kurus, of course, are in panic, like, you know, oh my God, if you try to kill a very powerful person and you fail, and the person knows you did it, uh, you're in trouble. And you're going to be, you know, even though I won't use the expression, but do something in your pants. So, and this was sort of the, this was sort of the mental state of the Kurus. So they had emergency meetings, and they decided we better divide the kingdom before they really get angry. So all these, and, and then they cheat, and then the Kurus cheat them in a gambling match. So the Pandos are suffering all these humiliations, all this injustice, and yet they tolerated it because they were, grew up as Brahmins. And, they had, and, and because they loved their own father so much, and because Peter Roster was their surrogate father, they couldn't get over this culture where, well, he's now our father. They, they were just, so they just tolerated and tolerated. So finally something happened which put an end to all their toleration. Something happened and they said, no more. And what happened? The insult to Drogi. So what's very interesting here is that they tolerated every type of humiliation, assassination attempt against themselves. But when Drogi was insulted, everything changed. And you see this in the Mahabharata. Their whole manner changes. Instead of just saying, oh, well, we have to tolerate, then they start making death threats. Then Bhima says to Duryodhana, I will kill you. And he tells me exactly how he's going to kill him. And Arjuna, as he's leaving, as he's leaving the great Kuru capital to go into exile, they're all making these symbolic gestures that everyone understands. For example, Arjuna is strewing these little blades of grass to say that how he's going to kill thousands of them. And so everyone knows 
that now everything has changed. Now it's war. Now it's his death. And why? Because Drogoli was insulted. That is chivalry. That is chivalry. That was the way women were treated. So the real Vedic culture, for example, we have in the, in the Upanishads, some of the oldest Upanishads that go back long before Krishna came. We find that, for example, Gargi, a lady, a Brahmin lady, is a guru, and that mighty kings bow to her and accept her as a guru. That's Vedic culture. So, um, yeah, we should beware of sort of foolish stereotypes of what Vedic culture is. These are real people. They have real relationships. Men and women actually love each other. There's chivalry. There's mutual respect. This is the real Vedic culture. So, any questions? Yes. Um, regarding the human, like sometimes the man husband to man, to, to choose woman to be too sensitive, too emotional. And I understand it's not that perfect because woman taking care of children, you know, and so so they need these emotions to take care of. Men and women, it's a compliment. I mean, there are ways in which men help women, and there are ways in which women help men. It's supposed to be a complementary relationship in which each one helps the other in something in which the other is deficient. And so in a good relationship, yeah, they help each other. Yes? It's a more simple question. You were mentioning earlier, you gave the image that many people can see God in the beauty of nature, but we can see God in the beauty of other people. What is the best way to answer to people who are going to argue, well, what about seeing God in all the disasters of, of the world and the suffering of the world? Why God, why your good God is doing that? What is the best way to... So the problem is evil? Um, yeah, that's a very old question. I mean, imagine how difficult that question is for Middle Eastern religions, like the Abrahamic religions, don't even have karma. I mean, they're like really stuck. Because, like, you know, this is our first life, we were just created. I mean, pity their philosophical problems. But in terms of ourselves, um, we do see Krishna everywhere. In fact, Krishna explicitly says, Jomam Pashiti Sarvata, one who sees me everywhere. One who sees everything in me. That's the true yogi. As far as why people are suffering, we have to remember that, for example, a good parent, a loving parent, will punish the child, but not injure the child. I, you know, I, I, like I often say this, but I don't tire of saying it, that I'm very, very grateful for the wonderful loving parents that I had. I, I'm, you know, I'm really, really grateful. And, you know, it's, Krishna says actually, and there's a statement by Krishna in the 10th canto, that if, when one's loving parents are older and need the help of the children, 
If the children don't take care of the parents, they will go to the darkest hell. So, so this, so again, I'm very grateful, but my mother definitely put the fear of God in me. I mean, you know, she was a very loving mother. It's not like she walked around like a tyrant all day, but, you know, if I misbehaved, I, uh, I still remember, actually, some of the scenes when I was a little kid. So, <laughs> so what was that question again? Did we just ask that question? Well, problem of evil. Yeah. I was asking how, how did we... Yeah, so as far as the suffering. So, okay, so that was my point. So my mother never injured me. I mean, she would, you know, again, I mean, she's a great mother, but we learned boundaries. So, but she would never injure me. So in the same way, Krishna will never injure a soul. Souls are his children. Loving parents don't injure their children. So what does Krishna do? He puts this virtual reality machine over you. And then all the karmic reactions don't actually happen to you. They happen to this machine. Now, because we identify with that machine, we bring the suffering on ourselves. Krishna's not telling us to identify with that machine. And why do we identify with it? Because we want to exploit the world. You know, it's like those things, you put a coin little machine, then you manipulate the shovel that picks up all these candies and prizes, you know. And so it's like, that's what our body's for, just like groping around for prizes. <laughs> so, so because we want to exploit the world, that's what draws us into attachment to the body, it's our desire to stick our hand in the cookie jar. That's why we're attached to the body. If we let go, if we were more respectful, and we saw that this world belongs to Krishna, and I'm just going to serve Krishna, if I was not attached to my body, then I wouldn't suffer that much. But even if, let's say, some people do suffer, I mean, we can't trivialize all the suffering in this world. But we have to remember it's not really happening to the person. The person thinks it's happening to me, but that's not actually what's happening. The soul itself is uninjured. And it's what Krishna says, nahanyate hanyamane sharide. The soul is not slain when the body literally is being slain. It's the present passive participle. So the soul is not slain when the body is being slain. Hanyamane. So Krishna's telling us, I'm not killing you. I'm not injuring you. It's just the body. And I didn't tell you to attach yourself to the body. And the suffering you're experiencing is because you caused that kind of suffering to others. You need to, it's like the Bob Dylan song, how does it feel? You know, it's sensitivity training. Karma, the law of karma is just the universe holding up a big mirror to you. This is what you're doing. This is how it feels to be around you. This is what you're doing to people. So yeah, I mean, having said all that, we, we really lament that people are so. Having said all that, uh, it, it really 
affects us. We're really sorry to see people suffering. And that's precisely why we dedicate our lives to helping people to stop their suffering. Even though people may not like the idea that you cause your own suffering, it's actually an empowerment. Because if you did not cause your own suffering, you can't stop it. But if you did cause your own suffering, you have the power to stop your suffering. So as you know, hard as it may be to swallow, so to speak, that I cause my own suffering, ultimately, it's, a, it's an empowering idea. Because it means I have the power to stop my suffering. I caused it, I could... I turned it on, I can turn it off. And so it's an opportunity to take power over your own life and create for yourself the life you want by listening to what Krishna's telling you. Yes? This reminded me of an old morning walk, and you asked Prabhupada, you said, you were, you were trying to understand, just like what Krishnamurti just said, but Prabhupada, they say, they meaning maybe academics or, or intelligent people, they say that even the potential that we could misuse our free will and fall down and suffer is somehow a defect in the creation. Do you remember when you asked Prabhupada? I remember that. I asked Prabhupada? Yes. And I forget what Prabhupada said. I was hoping you'd remember what he said. <laughs> well, I don't remember, but I can take a good guess. Um... <clears throat> To criticize someone, it's like maybe we should all go and throw darts at pictures of George Washington and Thomas Jefferson because they gave us political freedom and, <laughs> and now we elected someone. So, <laughs> I mean, I mean, the point is that uh, you're really going to criticize someone for giving you freedom because we can misuse it. Whereas would you rather be a, would you rather be enslaved? I mean, some people actually choose slavery, even relationships. There are people who are drawn again and again to abusive relationships where someone just, you know, enslaves someone else either emotionally or even physically, and they somehow, that's, you know, I feel better in this condition. You know, the philosopher that talks a lot about this is Nietzsche. He says there's, there's the slave mentality and there is the mentality of, you know, of the strong person, you know, what he called the ubermensch. And it's interesting, the reason, uh, to give you a little historical context, the reason Nietzsche was talking about this slave mentality and, uh, is because he and people like Kierkegaard, who are considered to be existential philosophers, existentialist philosophers, because they lived at a time in the 19th century, when the Industrial Revolution was really, I guess literally picking up steam, but the Industrial Revolution was transforming Europe, and you had this increasing homogenization, this standardizing of culture where everyone's the same, because you have mass production. You have mass production, so everyone wears the same clothes. Everyone reads the same newspapers. Everyone listens to the same music. And so, you know, you have the um, mass production. You have the mass production of culture. And, and with this mass production of culture and cultural standards, you have this increasing conformity, like everyone, because 
it's like you live in a village. People live in a village. You know, everyone's watching you, so everybody kind of does acts the same. So villages are not the best place for nonconformity and, you know, shocking creativity. It generally doesn't go on in villages. It's just like if you're born in some little town in Nebraska and you know, there's something about you which is not like the people around you, you're probably going to move to a big city. And, but when you have this mass production of culture, then, you know, it's almost like you recreate the type of village uh, control of everybody, but on a, a much larger scale. And so, there, and so some philosophers started sort of revolting against this and saying that people are not taking responsibility for their lives. They're just developing this mass consciousness so like everyone does this and everyone does that and everyone thinks this way. And so someone like Nietzsche, that's what Nietzsche was talking about when he talked about the slave mentality. That people just kind of are enslaved by mass culture and public opinion. Everybody's supposed to think this, which by the way, can happen even in a spiritual movement, right? Like everyone thinks the same way, and if someone says something different, that's the enemy. Even though you don't really think about what that person is saying. I'll leave that to you to ponder. So, so people like Kierkegaard, people, and then of course later in the 20th century, philosophers like French philosophers like Camus and Sartre and so on. Sartre, for example, uh, was growing up with a young man during the Nazi occupation of France and the Vichy government. And what he saw was, what really shocked him is that not only were certain French people cooperating with the, this puppet government, French government, and, and thereby with the Nazis, just to save their own lives, but some people really just kind of, well, that's the authority. So therefore we should, and, and they were cooperating more than required for their own safety. By the way, you get a great look at this type of people giving up their individual moral responsibility and strong authority in a classic English movie called Bridge Over the River Quad. Yeah, that's anyway, it's Academy Award winning it's one of the it's one of the great movies, now again, but this same idea. So therefore, what Sartre felt was happening. Give you a little taste of Western intellectual history. What Sartre felt was happening was the pernicious, the negative effects of a growing movement in the West called psychology. And I'll explain what he meant. And, and, and the villain he thought was Freud. Here's why because he thought it was leading to a type of psychological determinism. And I'll explain what that means. And you all hear this every day. It's like, let's say someone is rude to you, doesn't treat you properly. And when you complain, they say, you don't know what I've been through. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know what I had to go, what I, how I've suffered. In other words, because I've gone through certain experiences, therefore I am forced by the laws of psychology to be a jerk. And I'm not morally responsible. If I'm rude to you, if I mistreat you, if I really act inappropriately, I'm not responsible because of what happened to me. The laws of psychology force me to act this way as much as if someone pushes me from behind, 
I fall into you and knock you down, and I say, I'm entirely innocent, someone pushed me, I didn't do anything. And so if someone psychologically pushed me, and therefore I mistreat you, I'm not morally responsible for this. You've heard this, right, a million times. You don't know what I've been through. So um, that's called psychological determinism, and Sartre felt uh, people were invoking this in order to give up responsibility for their actions. So the whole thrust of existentialist philosophy is you are responsible. Uh, whether you've had a good life or not, whatever has happened, you're still responsible to respect other people and do the right thing. And Krishna says the same thing in Bhagavad Gita, by the way. There, there's really cool existentialist verses in Bhagavad Gita, especially 6, 5, and 6, where Krishna says, Udaret, you have to uplift yourself by yourself. Do not degrade yourself because ultimately only you can be your own friend. Only you can be your own enemy. No one else can really harm you. You could only harm yourself. And no one else can really help you. You have to help yourself. That's Bhagavad Gita 6, 5, and 6, verses which are not often cited, but maybe should be. So, what was the original question again? So, yes. the, best, the best devotees are the gopis. Now, gopis are, well, some are uh, jiva and some are internal forms, yeah? Some are shakti. What does that say? No, I'm just asking, is this true? Like Radharani, she's not a jiva, she's a shakti. Yes, yes. Okay, now she has free will, but she constitutionally can't misuse it. I think that's not the right way to put it. You can say she cannot misuse it. See, if you put it that way, it sounds like, well, occasionally she'd like to, but she just can't. Oh my God, I'm stuck in the internal potency. You know? Like, sorry, I can't really accept that invitation because I'm, you know, I've got this internal potency limitation on me. No, it's not that she can't misuse it. She is, it gets, you can ask the question, is it? that she cannot misuse her independence because she's internal Shakti? Or is it that she is internal Shakti because she will never misuse it, because she will never want to misuse it, because of her own glory? So if you say that she cannot misuse it, it's actually getting the logic backwards. So we are marginal energy and we can misuse it. So it sounds like we got a raw deal. No, it's, we, no, it's just... It's just it's not that uh, we got a raw deal. We may not be as powerful. You say, well, how did Radharani get to be Radharani? Why are we jivas? Maybe that has to do with the internal qualifications of different souls. Yeah, but am I responsible for that internal qualification? Yes, that's why I said internal. If it was Krishna's doing, it would not be internal. In other words, he didn't just wire you that way, like, hey, I'm going to have some fun. It's, it's like, you know, people kind of people, you know, back in the hills having illegal dog fights or cock fights or something. Hey, I'm going to create these people as marginal energy and then we're going to have some fun. Hey, look at that guy down here. Whoa! He just got himself in a mess. Hey, misuse. And so, I mean, the point is that Krishna is not playing with us in the sense of, you know, like, 
trivializing our suffering. That was the thrust of your question at Prabhupada. What's that? That was the thrust of your question at Prabhupada. But even the potential that we can misuse our free will is somehow a defect in Well, first of all, to say that to say that the internal potency cannot we, we cannot deny that Krishna or his internal potency have free will. We can't deny they have free will. And so if you, because if you say that Krishna cannot do the wrong thing, it's like, who made that law which Krishna must obey? I didn't mean to put it like that. But let's put it that way. But constitution. No, but I want to put it that way. Because I think that brings out the real point. Krishna has, not only does Krishna have free will, he has infinite free will. And so what I'm saying is, the difference between Krishna and, and you know, the internal potency and the jivas is not just that they're all made differently so that like, like we're kind of booby-trapped, but Radha isn't. I think that's going down it backwards. That, that these great souls like Krishna, because we're eternal, we've always existed. I mean, technically, we were never made a particular way. We eternally exist a certain way. That's Krishna's energy, and that's just who we are, and that's who they are. So the marginal potency is not a defect in the creation, it's just a, another aspect. It's just who we are. It reflects our own, because if we have free will and we exist eternally, and so how can we not have any responsibility for the way we are? I mean, of course, we didn't create ourselves and we're not created by anyone. Even Krishna doesn't create us because Krishna says there was never a time we didn't exist. So creation in the sense that yesterday you didn't exist and today you do, we were never created. We've always existed. But still Krishna is the source and we're the emanation. Yes, but Krishna does not do anything unfair or unkind to anyone. So instead of resenting my free will, I simply have to use it. Take responsibility for it. Because if I choose the wrong thing, how can I blame Krishna for giving me that power for giving me free will. And if Radharani and Krishna never misuse their free will, it's not that, well, it's easy for them not to use misuse their free will, <laughs> which means they don't get credit for it. Like, well, Radharani, it's not that, you know, you don't just get credit for not misusing her free will. You know, she's just wired in such a way that whenever she, even she tried, it like, boom, and then she just like would shut off. And then, <laughs> it's, you know, it's not like that. We should give them credit for their own glory rather than thinking they just, you know, they just have a better software than we do or something. And, 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 we, and we should also remember, now that we're at it, it's Monday Night Live. So we should also remember that most of the souls don't fall down. So we have to take individual responsibility. No one, I saw this great bumper sticker that said um, Humpty Dumpty was pushed. <laughs> so, yeah, we can't say, you know, I was pushed, that's unfair, like, you know, thanks a lot, Christian, for putting me in the marginal category. It's, we do have free will, we are responsible. And we should not try to shift the blame to someone else. We should just, you know, 
be honest, take the blame. We can't say be a man, because you know, some people aren't men. But we should just have the courage, just take the responsibility, you know, and then do the right thing. So, uh, running out of time here, we're uh, looking up at the scoreboard clock. <laughs> Any last questions? What? Oh, my books. Okay, can someone hand me a book? Because it's much too much work for me to get up and take responsibility. <laughs> take responsibility for bringing the book over here. Hi out there. <laughs> my name is Rita Nandatasko Swami. And if I got a deal for you, I'm willing to give you my latest book. You probably think you can't afford it. This one cost me $50, $100. But just today, I'm going to let this be. Okay. So. <laughs> Anyone doesn't have this book, please, we'll take one moment. Anyone doesn't have this book, please feel ashamed of yourself. <laughs> and then, I um, actually did this book in obedience to a direct order that Prabhupada gave me. Prabhupada once wrote me a letter and said, read my books and then explain them in your own language. So I am not only a Western thing, but uh, I come from the far West. I mean, it's even worse than that. You know, California. So, anyway, so my my outlook is tends to be, I hope, devotional and faithful. I mean, I hope, but but also rational and really like clear, rational <coughs> explanations. I like literal translations. And we can't imitate Prabhupada. For example, Prabhupada has his own translation style, in which he often, you know, as he said, puts the purports into the verses. So when I began to translate to finish the Bhagavatam, at first I just did it like Prabhupada, but then as, I, as time went on, and I think by Prabhupada's blessings, I started to sort of realize my own nature, my own